All right. Let me uh, pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. We pray that uh, we would find um, a growing appreciation for your mercy and for your grace and your presence among us, and that you would be glorified as we uh, meet to worship you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, you have a handout in front of you. Uh, we're going to, Lord willing, go numbers one through six. So we're going to see that God is preparing the people to go to the promised land. You'll remember that we have uh, God's people, right? And the goal is that they would be in God's perfect place uh, under God's perfect rule or among with his perfect presence, you might say. So people, place, presence. Uh, to some degree, we could summarize the entire storyline of the Bible that way. Um, there certainly are other major themes that you know run throughout that and connect with it. Um, but that's kind of a, maybe a big picture. Uh, so when we finished, so we look at the Pentateuch, we've seen the, the Genesis, we've seen uh, Exodus, we've seen Leviticus. And so you'll remember at the end of Exodus, uh, what we have is we have God's people have been redeemed out of their enslavement in Egypt right? And so that's what redemption is. And so we're redeemed out of our enslavement to sin, to Satan. Um, we are redeemed uh, through God's judgment and uh, his saving work. Both those things happen over and over again in the Bible, right? As God saves, he also judges. Both those things happen. Uh, in Egypt, you see God's enemies being judged and God's people being saved. Uh, when it comes to Jesus Christ, Jesus is judged for us. And it is only through judgment that we are saved. You see that with the flood, right? Judgment and salvation. Both those things go hand in hand. Um, and that's part of what it means for God to have a perfect place is there's going to be a rooting out of evil and um, God will pour out judgment so that he will also bring salvation. So that's what we have uh, happening. But at the end of Exodus, so I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but back in Exodus, the redemption has uh, happened in terms of they've been brought out. They have been given God's law and they um, are being um, told about God's presence that's going to be among them. Um, the sacrificial system. We, we go into Leviticus. We see that there's going to be this sacrificial system. I mean, how is the holy God going to dwell among a sinful people, right? There's got to be sacrifice. There's got to be payment to cover sin, atonement. And so there's going to be a place of cleansing and forgiveness, and that's where God is going to dwell in a special way among his people, is in the tabernacle. Uh, so that's where we're at. Uh, and if you go to Exodus 40, so turn to Exodus 40, Exodus 40, when we get to the end of Exodus, so this is uh, before they've, they've really done the whole, you know, laying out of the sacrificial system. They've been redeemed. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's given them his law. He's told them about the tabernacle. They construct the tabernacle. And then at the end of Exodus in verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that's what we've been looking for, right? God's presence among his people, his glory among his people. So success, right? This is, this is amazing. But we still have this problem, verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You have the glorious God dwelling among his people, but they are sinful people and they have no way of dwelling, going into the tent, right? So we, we still have a problem, and that's what Leviticus comes to answer, is how is this going to be fixed? So what you have at the beginning of Leviticus, chapter 1, so look at Leviticus 1.1. 1, 1. You should just have to flip over like a page or two, depending on how big your study Bible is, right? So those of you carrying the 
big ESV study Bible. You have to turn a couple more pages to get there, but you'll get there. Leviticus 1.1 talks about how the Lord um, called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So God is talking to Moses from the tent. Moses is not in the tent. Um, no one is in the tent, just the Lord. So again, we're just being reminded we got to fix this problem. The book of Leviticus is telling us how that problem gets fixed. We have a sacrificial system. We have priests. We have mediators who are going to go between. And by the time you get to Leviticus 16, which is the center of the Pentateuch, everything is leading up to that moment. Uh, in Leviticus 16, um, you have the Day of Atonement, right? And that is central to how the people are going to be able to have God dwell in their midst, not wipe them out, and in fact, bless them. Look at Numbers 1 now. Go to Numbers 1. Numbers 1, verse 1. So once we get through all the things that are laid out in Leviticus, we see this. Numbers 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So now we have, there's an in the tent of meeting, right? The preposition really matters here. They are in the tent of meeting. Moses is able to speak to the Lord or hear the Lord speak in the tent of meeting. Um, so that's all good. We have God's people. We have God's presence, but we are not in God's place. Now, in one sense, we do have God's place. We have the tabernacle, which in, in some ways points back to this kind of garden-like place where God's going to dwell among his people, uh, but they're not in the land that he promised. You remember last week we talked about some of the promises in Genesis? Um, so may, maybe, um, I think in a minute we're going to be in Genesis uh, somewhere, 15, so you may want to turn to Genesis 15, but keep your hand in, in numbers because we're going to spend most of our time in numbers here. But um, if you want to look at this verse in a minute, Genesis 15 is where we're going to be. Um, <clears throat> so what we're going to see in Numbers 1 through 6, really 1 through 10, is really all about God preparing his people to go to his place. Okay? He's, that's where we're at in the storyline. He's preparing his people to go to the place. And then what we're going to find later in, after Numbers 10 is, because uh, Numbers 10 is actually a very, Numbers is a very sad book, they're going to fail miserably. They're going to constantly doubt. They're going to constantly complain. They're going to rebel. There's going to be uh, judgment, uh, but there will still be salvation. There will be a new generation that we're going to come to at the end of Numbers that will make it into the land. Now, they're not going to make it into the land at the end of Numbers. We'll have to wait until um, really, well, Joshua, really. But Deuteronomy is going to kind of get us another step closer. Um, so that's where we're going. But in Genesis 1, or sorry, Numbers 1 through 6, we're going to see that they have to get uh, organized by God told how they're going to dwell in, in, this, in this camp, how they're going to move. They have to move the tabernacle. They got to figure out what that's going to be like. Um, you know, the, the, there are wholly set-apart things in the tabernacle. Um, they're going to have to be told how to do that. Because remember, God is holy. That's one thing we've been seeing over and over again. You don't just uh, willy-nilly do whatever you want. You remember uh, two guys named Nadab and Abihu? Uh, that didn't go very well for them when they offered unauthorized fire, right? Um, you'll remember later in the storyline, Uzzah, uh, he touches the ark and he dies. So they have to know what God expects of them if they're going to regard him as holy and, uh, and transport the tabernacle. There's other things that need to happen too. So we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see, you can kind of see the outline there. Um, we have this census of men who are ready for war. It's going to be chapter one. The centrality of God's presence, that's going to be chapter two. Census and jobs for the priest who are going to keep the tabernacle. That's chapters three and four. And then consecrating the camp, numbers five and six. So these are all steps in preparing for the people to go to the place, right? God's people, God's place, God's presence. That's what we're seeing. So that's the progress we're trying to make. 
along the way, we'll learn some lessons for ourselves. Um, so let's look. Um, so I told you to turn to, to Genesis 15. That's good. Hold your hand there. But look back at, at Numbers. I, I want to read a couple of verses in Numbers first. So Numbers 1. The census of men ready for war. Look at Numbers 1, verses 1 through 3. Um, you know what? Was I going to... Oh, I was going to show you a map. See, I have a cool PowerPoint today. I was going to show you a map. You probably can't really see that. But down here is, is where they're at. They're in Sinai area. So that's where they... And they've been there um, all the way from Exodus 19, I think, to about Numbers 11. That's where they are. And it's really only been a period of like um, one to two months that's going on here in all that span. Leviticus is all right there. The end of Exodus is all right there. They're getting all these laws and, and rules. Um, then later in, in Numbers, they're going to start traveling. They're going to go up to Kadesh Barnea um, and they're going to keep going. They're going to have some problems and they're going to have to kind of circle around. They're basically going to end up living in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. So it's going to, you know, what you have happening in the, in the middle of Numbers is um, time is uh, you had time going, you know, kind of uh, very slowly. Um, and then you're going to have time really speeding up because you're going to have 40 years covered in relatively few number of chapters. Um, and that's, you know, often the way the Bible works. It draws emphasis to things by slowing down because there's more to say in a shorter span that, that's drawing emphasis to what's going on. And so when they're being told this is what it's like to live as God's people, it slows down. The narrative slows down. Uh, when they're wandering in the wilderness, it speeds back up again. And there's still lessons to learn, but we move faster through that. Okay, so um, Numbers 1, 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So again, that's, that's where they're at. In the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. Okay, so there's, they're going to do a census here. We are not going, so some of you people, you love math, but um, we're not going to read through all the, uh, the census, uh, and we're not going to count up all the people. We're going to get a summary total at the end, um, which I'm thankful for that uh, the math was done for us. So we'll get there in a minute. But what I want you to see is I want to make sense of this census. Why are we taking this census? Um, well, we're kind of told in verse 3, right? What's, what do you think one of the main reasons they're taking the census is? Prepare for war. Prepare for war, right? They need to know how many men they have of fighting age and ability. Okay, so uh, why do they need an army? Yeah, they're going into a land, and is that land empty? No. That land is not empty, right? So flip back, hold your hand in numbers, turn back to Genesis 15. One of the times that God is giving covenant promises to Abraham, and we see that kind of happen a couple times, right? There's covenant promises given. Um, the same promises are kind of reiterated several times in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 15 Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, so remember he, his name gets changed later, so don't be confused by that. Abram is Abraham, right? Uh, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, so what's that talking about? Egypt, right? So they're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. This hasn't happened yet, but it's being prophesied. It's what's going to happen. Um. In fact, Abraham won't even be alive when it happens, right? 
Uh, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Is that what happened? Yes, right? That's in Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. So like I said, Abraham won't experience all this. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here. So Abraham is in what is the promised land. God is saying, I'm promising to give you this land, and Abraham is in the area of what's going to become Israel. That's where Abraham is when this promise is being made. So he says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here's the reason. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So they're in Egypt. They're going to end up after about 400 years being brought back into the land. And one of the reasons they're not going to come into the land earlier is because the, some of the peoples living there, their iniquity has not been completed yet. God is very gracious and patient, but his cup of wrath is filling and it will be poured out. We see the same thing happening in the end times. God is very patient with these pagan nations, but judgment eventually falls. It eventually comes because God is just. He is not going to overlook sin and rebellion and, and iniquity. He will bring judgment. And so that's going to happen. But notice that God is very gracious. He allows 400 years for these people to continue in their wickedness, right? And they are going to refuse to repent even after they hear of the great wonders that God did in bringing this people out of Egypt, they're not, they're not saying, well, you obviously are from the Lord. Uh, what do we need to do, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're ready to go to war against Israel. So why does Israel need to have an army? Because God is going to use them to pour out his justice, his vengeance on these nations that are in there when he's going to give them the land, right? Um, so we, that's what we're going to have happening. So they need to have an army. Because we're going to see in Joshua later on, they do go into the land and they have to conquer it. Um, the other thing we see about this uh, census, so that's one thing we see about the census, is what, what's going on? Well, they're, they're getting ready to go into a land where they're going to have to have war. Um, the second thing we see is that God is fulfilling promises, other promises made to Abraham. If you go, um, we're going to come back to Genesis 22, so, um, or in 15, I know. We're going to end up in Genesis 22, but look back at Numbers 1. Numbers 1, verses 44 through 46. See if you can think about another promise that God made to Abraham that's being fulfilled and we're being kind of told that's what's being fulfilled. Verse 44, these are those who are listed. So they, they already went through and listed all these people with Moses and Aaron. Um, Aaron uh, listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. Okay, what is another promise God made to Abraham that we might see um, is being fulfilled? What was that? Yes, so there's going to be a son, and what's going to come after that? as many as the sands of... That's right. And so, so you have this barren woman, right? And so, so they're being told, listen, you're, you're going you're to have descendants as many as the sand on the sea, sure. And then Sarah's barren. So he fulfills initially the promise through, through Sarah having a son, right? But then now we're being told we have 603,000 Israelites. Well, sorry, 603,000 men of war age. So we actually have a lot more Israelites than 603,000, right? Um, Genesis 22, verse 17. If you look back there real quick, God says, I will surely bless you. This is, this is after, um, so Isaac was born. He's the son of promise, and he, God tells him to go sacrifice Isaac. That's a pretty big deal. This is the son of promise. 
right? Because remember, we told you that in Genesis 3, we're told there's going to be an offspring that's coming. And the rest of the Bible is really, Old Testament is looking for this offspring. Who's it going to be? We have Seth, we have Noah, we, have, we just keep going down the line. Well, here we are, we've, we've landed at Isaac, and he's told to sacrifice Isaac. Um, the Lord um, tests his faith here. He doesn't end up, he, uh, because the Lord doesn't have him actually sacrifice him. But in verse 17, he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. So we see that promise is made, and we're seeing it being kept when we get to Numbers. If you remember, how many people um, went into Egypt? Do you want to remember a roundabout? 70 people, right? There's about 70 of them that go into Egypt whenever they're taken, whenever, well, they're not really taken captive. They go there initially, right? They end up becoming slaves, but they, they go into Egypt with 70 people. Here they are leaving about 400 years later with um, a lot of people, right? A lot of people are leaving. So we see the Lord blessed his people. Uh, he multiplied them as he said he would do. Um, so people have grown. And so we have God's people and they've grown and they're getting ready to go to God's place. But we need instructions on how to arrange the camp that they live in and how to move the camp, right? So that's what brings us to the next section, which is chapter two of Numbers. Chapter two of Numbers. Uh, let's look at verses one through two. I don't know that we're going to be back in Genesis. So I think if you want, you can let go of Genesis. Um, that frees up some processing space. I'm not sure. I'm not going to promise that. Um, I'm fairly certain, maybe 75% confidence on that. All right. So numbers two, the arrange, uh, the cent- what we see here really is the centrality of God's presence. Um, when we talk about the arranging of the camp. So uh, let's read verses one and two. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Okay, so uh, what is, what, what, uh, how, how are they laid out in terms of where the tent is? So the tent is in the center, right? The tabernacle's in the center, and they're arranged around it. Now, we're not going to read through this that goes on and explains, like, all the details of where each person is. Instead, I'm going to show you this. This summarizes what's going on. Now, I know there's a lot up there. The main thing to see is, where's the tent? The tabernacle, God's special presence, is in the middle. And you have um, the priests. We're going to talk about them. We haven't gotten to them yet. But they are immediately surrounding the tent, the tabernacle. And then outside of them, we have all the tribes laid out. Um, You'll notice that we have north on there. You see the little uh, north compass on that far side over there. So that's just important because it tells you that east, which would be the front area in the ancient mind, east would be the front. um, And that's in fact where the door is. And so we have Judah, Issachar, Zebulon over there. And then you can see the other tribes if you keep going around. Uh, They gave you the all capital letter names in this diagram from the ESV Study Bible. What they're showing you is that that is the head tribe of those three tribes when it comes time to march out. Because you'll see down below, you see that down below, that's the order they're going to march in. So they have to know how to set up the camp and they have to know how to march out. Okay? Now... What is something interesting we notice here about the order? Remember, east is the front. What's at the very front? Who is at the very front? What tribe? Judah. Judah. Okay. If, you, if we read through the census section, who do you, we, I, we didn't read through it, so this is kind of a little 
bit of an unfair question, but you could go back and look at it. Uh, who's the first, who, what tribe do they start with, would you think? Or can you go back and look and see? Is it Judah? It's Iskar. Is it Iskar? I think it's Reuben. Oh, oh, no, no. I'm talking when they did the census. I'm sorry. When they did the census back in chapter one, they start with Reuben. Why do they start with Reuben? Because he is firstborn, firstborn, right? That's pretty typical. That's the way you normally do it. So why is Judah in the front? Your offspring will come from Judah. That's right. The yes. offspring. Yes, yes. So I, um, I told you I wasn't going to have you turn back to Genesis, and I'm not, but I'm going to read something from Genesis. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So we already have a prophecy back in Genesis 49 that the king who's going to lead the people was going to come from Judah. Judah is the tribe of kingly leadership. Yes. Can you point to Judah on the top part? Um, yes, so Judah is up here. Okay. And that's and that's the east side, so they're going to be leading. And then you also see down here when they set out, Judah's in the front. Because you said something about east was in east and ancient. No, east is like the front. Yeah. But it's still like east, north south. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 So the directions are still the same. Okay. So north. So that's the north side. So Dan is up on the north side, right? Uh, and then east, and so you can also see who, out of, the, out of the Levites, who's right in front of the door of the tent. The priests are. It's not just any Levite. It's the priestly section that comes from Aaron, right? So again, we have this very much like centrality of right in front of the door to the tabernacle. We have the priests, and then we have um, Judah and those other tribes, but really Judah's kind of the head tribe there. Uh, so Judah is going to have the scepter. Uh, Revelation 5.5, 5, near the end of, in the end of the Bible. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So later on, David's really going to be the central king that we look to. He's kind of the prototypical king. Has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So uh, this, this factors into the storyline of the Bible as a whole. That's why we have Judah at the front. Um, so it's pretty significant. So, so they're going to get ready to go here. Um, and... Uh, they need the tabernacle to move with them because God's presence among them is really central to their life. I think that's kind of the point, right? He's central in the camp. He's central when they're moving because God, and you'll remember, remember back in, uh, I think it's Exodus. Yeah, Exodus, uh, when the people really mess up and sin significantly and God says, um, he says, well, he threatens several things, right? I'm gonna judge them, I'm gonna wipe them out. And we see that this forces Moses to function as an as a intercessor, that's, got, that's the whole reason God does this, in fact, is because he's setting up this idea of there's going to be someone who's got to go between the sinful people and God, right? Moses is not ultimately going to be that person. He's not perfect because even Moses is going to sin. Um, but one of the things that's said is, look, um, you lead them into the land, but I will not go with you. And do you remember what Moses says? He basically says, just kill us now. If that's what's going to happen, just kill us. Don't even send us into the land. Why? Because God's presence among his people is what they most want or what they should most want, right? They're, they're sinful like we are. Um, but think about this. I mean, how many uh, Christians or at least people that would claim to be Christians and maybe even us at times, um, you know, if God gave us that deal, we think, well, that's not that bad. At least we get to go to his place, right? If, if we can go to heaven, that's good. It's okay if God doesn't go with us. We haven't understood what heaven is all about, Heaven is great because God's presence is there. His perfect blessing presence. God is everywhere. Yes, we get that. The Old Testament even tells us that. But his special blessing presence to his smiling face among his people. 
right? And so we need to remember that, that that is our joy, is that God's presence is right now in us through his spirit as New Testament believers, and we will experience the fullness of his presence in his perfect place. That is what makes heaven great to us. There are lots of people that would love to go to a place like heaven. It's not really heaven, but like heaven, and be as long as God's not there. Unbelievers would like that, right? They don't want suffering. They don't want hell, but they don't want heaven where God is in charge because that's not good news to them. Um, and so we, we need to be marked differently than that. And even as Christians, we can fall into that. So let's remember God himself is the best gift. So uh, now we're going to move on because they, they've got to move uh, this tabernacle and they've got to deal with the tabernacle. And so in chapters three and four, we get a census of the priests. Um, we're going to have the census of the priests being given to us. Let's uh, look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. So Numbers 3, 5 through 10. Numbers 3, 5 through 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Okay, so what are the Levites doing? Well, there's a guarding going on, a keeping going on. Um, which the language there is actually similar to, it's the same word as used in Genesis when Adam and Eve are to keep the, the garden. But here, obviously, that looks a little different because now sin is in the picture. So guarding and keeping means now we actually have evil that needs to be, uh, maybe at times even people need to be killed when they try to come to this tabernacle. Um, and so we have a guarding going on. They are going to minister to the priests. Now, the Levites are, they're all part of the same tribe, but not all Levites are priests. You understand that, right? So Aaron and his, his immediate group, they're the priests. The rest of the Levites serve in the ministry of the tabernacle and the worship of God, but they're not all priests. And that's what you have happening here. Um, we're reminded that the, that the Levites are to represent all the people, that all the people belong to God. That's what the Levites are to represent. That's why it talks about the first, God talks about, you know, the firstborn, they are all mine. That's just a picture of everything is mine. It doesn't just mean this one group is mine. Kind of like the first fruits, right? You give first fruits back to God in worship to show that it all belongs to you. You're not just giving it to say, well, this is your portion and the rest of it actually belongs to us. It's just that God is graciously giving you back the rest of it, right? So look at Numbers 3, verses 11 through 13. So this is the first, they, they do two, so I guess what I'm trying to tell you now is they do two censuses of the Levites. Why do they do that? The first one is to show everyone in Israel belongs to God. And here's what I mean. Look at verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, behold, I have taken the Levites from the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So they do this census because that's what they, they need to figure out how many Levites there are because part of what happens is the Levites represent all the firstborn among Israel. When the number of them is totaled, whatever the difference is between those Levites and the firstborn males within the rest of Israel is, they are to pay 
an offering to offset that to show that they, are, they recognize that everyone belongs to them. So they have to calculate through census how many Levites there are. They've already calculated some stuff about the rest of Israel. So they're going to use this to figure out how much of um, offering a tithe that they're going to give. Uh, so for us, though, theologically, I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is, because we're not having to calculate all this and do all this, right? We're in a different covenant. But we do recognize that everything belongs to the Lord. That, I think that's the point we take away from that, right? Everything belongs to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. Um, everything we have belongs to him. And everything we enjoy is a gift he gives back to us, right? Our life, our breath, our money, our families, everything is a gift he gives back to us to enjoy to his glory. Uh, but we see another census of the Levites. And so listen to who this is and why we do this census. Look at chapter four, verses one through three. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi. So this is one of the clans within Levi by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work of the tent of meeting. Okay, so who and why? I, well, I should let me back up and say one more thing because if we kept reading, he says the same thing for Gershon and the same thing for Merari and those are the three heads of the Levites groups. So he says to do this for every group of the Levites. So it's every group of the Levites, but what's the age bracket? 30, 30. So there, there's this older age bracket, and why? What are they supposed to do? That's right, work at the tent of meeting. So now what we're seeing is, okay, we've got to move the tabernacle, we've got we to maintain it, we've got to do certain things. We need, the Levites have practical work to do. They're gonna, so we need to know how many of them there are to do this work, to transport things, to keep things moving. And so that's what they're going to do. And they're going to they're gonna keep the um, tabernacle, which again I mentioned is what the same word used in Genesis 1 and 2 of keeping the garden. Um, I think we're being pointed back to that because the temple does point us back to this uh, idyllic garden-like setting. There's a lot of things in the garden that, that point back to that, or in the temple that point back to the garden. Um, so we, the, all these uh, folks you can see here, again, there's a lot of words on here, but you can see you have um, all the tribe, all of the Levites are laid out around the tent like we saw earlier. This is kind of a zoomed in picture. They all have different jobs of what they're going to carry. This is um, not super important for you necessarily in your daily life, but the Kohathites, they carry the furniture, the ark, and other things. They're told how to carry the ark. That's very important, right? Because later on, they forget this and things go badly. Not them, but uh, Uzzah. Um, then we have, uh, what else? Let's see, the, the Gershonites, they carry the cloth and the exterior tent-type parts. And then the Merarites who carry the frames, the pillars, and more structural things. That sounds like the heavier load to me, but um, I don't know. I think they had donkeys that helped them, actually. There are certain things that donkeys would help with and certain things they wouldn't. So I think the guys who had the heavier load got the donkeys. So in case you were wondering and concerned about them. Um... So one takeaway for us is that everyone has a role to play because why? In the New Testament, we are a kingdom of priests, right? Every believer is, is a priest unto the Lord. And so think about how this translates to us. They all had different roles to play. We all have different roles to play. Not everyone is doing the work of a pastor, right? Not everyone is doing this work over here or that work over here, but we all have roles to play and we all need to faithfully do them because we all have an area of service within God's place. In fact, we are God's place as God's people, right? We're told that he, the spirit dwells in us individually as believers and within the church body, the, the, all the collective group of believers. 
And so we are this tent, this tabernacle, and we all have a role to play. We can't just uh, shirk our duty. We all need to find ways to serve within worshiping and serving and building up the body of Christ. Well, now we're going to move to consecrating the camp in chapters 5 through 6. So chapters 5 through 6, they're going to consecrate the camp. That means to set it apart. Um, So we've seen the census, people ready to go to war. We've seen the centrality of God within the camp. We've seen the census of the priest and their duties. And now we're going to see that the camp as a whole must be consecrated. And there are four main areas that are adjusted, are are dealt with in here. So let's look at those. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, put them outside the camp that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Um, I just give you this chart on here. This is back when we talked in Leviticus, um, just to kind of maybe help you visualize. We have this idea of there is those things which are holy, which means they are set apart to God. Generally, there had to be sacrifice and blood sprinkled and different things to set it apart to show this is uniquely used in worship of God, right? Um, And so we had things that were common, which could not just make their way into the holy. So you can't just, uh, even if you were clean, you could not just walk into the tabernacle um, without having been set apart to the Lord somehow, right? And so that's what we see happening uh, with the fact that through sacrifice, things could be sanctified. Um, but within the common, we have the clean and the unclean. So we can have things that are, are clean, that, that is, they are, um, they're not polluted, and then we can move to things that are unclean. And things to go from unclean to clean had to be purified. Um, they had to be made clean. Now, just to be clear, I'm going to get to you in one second. Just to be clear, um, unclean is not always synonymous with sinful. And we tried to make that clear in Leviticus. You can go back and listen to some of those talks in Leviticus. Unclean does deal with sinful things. That's true. Something can be made unclean through sin. Um, but certain things are unclean just, and we don't always know exactly like the, the food things. We don't always know all the details of why certain foods are unclean and certain aren't. But, but one thing that we do see with a lot of the food things, and we see with other things like discharges of blood and other um, things like skin diseases, is that it seems to be tied to the realm of death. Things that somehow are connected with an idea of death, like loss of blood, um, skin flaking off the body, and diseases that could bring death, right? Um, these type of things can somehow point to the realm of death. And uh, I don't have time to develop all this now. Um, there's a guy, the guy who made this chart um, developed some of that in his book. I think it's helpful. Um, but I, I guess the point is, when we talk about these people being kept outside the camp, it's not necessarily, hey, these are the sinful, wicked people. We're going to put them outside the camp. Now, some of it could be that, but, but a lot of it is somehow death is tied up with what's going on here. And if we have the holy God who is the God of life, the unclean will not enter before him unless they are made clean, okay? And so we have a, we have a big theological picture that we're being given um, with this idea of clean and unclean things. And, and we, again, we developed most of that in Leviticus. I'm just throwing this out there again. Uh, so if you really want to go deeper into that, you're going to have to go back and listen to some of that or just go read Leviticus and um, meditate on it and think deeply about it. Um, Leviticus is a little bit of a tough book to meditate on, but yeah, go ahead. Well, you, you kind of started the answer. <clears throat> yeah. So, but- what is the what is the nature of those people? They're not killed. Right, that's right. They're put out, but they're not yeah. killed. How do they relate to those who are within the, the tent? Right. Within the 
the group. Yeah. Clean. How, what's the relationship? Right. So they can't come into the camp, right? right. So, so they can't come into the camp. Uh, if they have a leprous disease, um, no one's supposed to go near them we're told because, and, and so this does bring us to, so there's three different things. Um, yeah. So th- three different reasons they're put, uh, they're put outside the camp. One is for physical reasons. It does promote a certain sense of health with some of these diseases. Some of these skin diseases could be extremely contagious. So I think that's part of what's going on. The theological reason is what I was just elaborating on. And it shows us that God is holy and he's the God of life and sin and death are not going to be in his presence. Okay. I think that's theologically what Israel is being taught through this. Um, and then Christologically, or you might say the gospel reason is the people have to be redeemed from sin and they have to be made clean. And, and that becomes, the more you go through the rest of the Bible and you see salvation unfolding, you recognize that's what we need because sin has made us unclean, right? There's, there's a spiritual reality here. And so, um, when you get to, uh, for example, Revelation 21, even at the end of the Bible in verse, uh, three, we're told in this new heavens and new earth, there's not going to be death anymore. Death won't be in the new heavens and new earth, Right. In verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. So even in, even in this, this, nothing unclean, nothing related to death is going to enter into God's kingdom. And sin, which leads to death, nothing sinful is going to enter into this kingdom. So nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's verse 27 of Revelation 21. So, when we talk about what this really signifies and what I think this is preparing us for is uh, Jesus is going to be crucified outside of the city. You remember that? He is taken outside. So, so Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He brings the cleansing by going out. He takes the curse, which is because of our sin. He takes our sin on him. And think about it. A lot of the curse too is it's a result of sin in the world, not always a direct result of my sin even. Some, some of my, 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 these things I'm experiencing are because I'm just unclean in this world. He takes all of that uncleanness. He takes all of that sin, all, you know, all of it's tied together. And he goes outside the camp where I should be. I should not be allowed into the Revelation 21 kingdom because I am unclean and detestable, right? I should not be allowed in there, but because he goes outside the camp, I can come in. I am forgiven and cleansed and can come into the camp. Um, so I think that's really what God is setting us up for through the storyline of the Bible with this idea of uncleanness. In addition to that, again, there's the physical reason. There are, there are health reasons they're doing it. There are um, other things that are going on, right? Um, so it's complex, but, uh, but I, think, I think we get the gist of it. Okay. Um, so second, they need to be able to relate to uh, one another well. If, uh, if they're going to be set apart here. Look at chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Speak, Moses, the Lord said to Moses, speak, uh, saying, sorry, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of these sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. So this law is more clearly spelled out in other passages, but I think the point here is, uh, so you're talking about con- how do we consecrate? How does this camp set apart? Well, we got to get rid of uncleanness. That's one thing, right? It can't be near the tabernacle. Um, they're still there. They're not just completely kicked out of Israel. They're just not right directly around the tabernacle. It's like that circle we saw. Outside of that circle is another circle of unclean. Okay, that's the point. Okay. Um, but now, um, 
The way we relate to one another in the camp matters too if we're going to be consecrated to God. If someone steals something, they got to make it right through confession and restitution. So, so how are they going to relate to one another as the set-apart people to God? They're going to look different than the nations around them. They're going to make restitution. They're going to fix things when they sin against each other. And uh, we have a similar thing that we have a responsibility in the new covenant to make it right when we sin against one another. If you, if you realize, if you're making your offering and you realize that your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother, you go and make it right, right? You ask for forgiveness. And so we see a similar thing even in the new covenant. Third, uh, fidelity and purity in marriage. Uh, this section, they are given a um, test to reveal, hmm, wondering if we should stop here. This is a big section. Um, let, me, let me try to do this section, and we might just end here. We may not do the rest of it today and see what happens. We'll see what happens next week. I'm not sure. Maybe we should stop now. This is a lot. All right, we'll stop here, and we'll pick back up next week. Um, although I don't think I'm the one teaching next week, so... We'll see how that works, but we'll figure it out. Um, so yes, so, okay, so we're moving fast. We're moving fast. I get that. Um, that's intentional. So like I said at the beginning, what we're trying to do here is we could go verse by verse through numbers, and there's a place for that. In fact, I encourage you to read through numbers. Um, but there's also a place to go fast enough that you don't get so tied up in all the weeds that you forget the bigger picture. We could do that by just doing a one and done, overview and we're done. We kind of did that last time. But there are things that we pick, I mean, hopefully you're already seeing that. There are things that when we did that overview last time, we would not have seen if we did not slow down. So yeah, we're not going to read through all the genealogies and the lists. That's not because they're not important. That reminds us that God dealt with a real people who lived in real space at real time to bring about real redemption. That is important. But we've chosen to go a little faster so that you get the details, you get, you get some more of the details without getting lost in those weeds. That's the way we're approaching it. I think, I think there's a place for people to go verse by verse teaching it. I think there's a place for just a one and done. We're picking a mid-speed, okay? So anyway, that's why we're going fast, um, but hopefully it's giving you a picture. So to summarize today, I would just say we recognize the people have to be prepared to go to the place. God is fulfilling promises. They are a big people, right? He is faithful to his promises, he is holy, so they have to take that seriously. They have to deal with uncleanness in the camp, and as we're seeing now, we'll hopefully see next week, they've got to deal with sin in the camp. Um, they, they've got to deal with, with all sorts of things to be set apart. We're going to see a whole group of people called Nazarites that can be set apart to the Lord, and that's, again, a picture that all of Israel really is meant to belong to God. So these things translate to us in the New Covenant. We are a kingdom of priests. We belong to God. The only reason we have that status and the only reason we can enter his perfect place is because Jesus fulfilled all the things that the priesthood pointed to. All the things the sacrifices pointed to, he fulfills perfectly. He is the priest that not only, in the Old Testament, that not only could say, yes, God has made you clean. You are clean. You may now go into the camp. That priest couldn't touch someone unclean because he'd become unclean. Jesus is the only priest that came and in his earthly ministry touched the unclean. They became clean and he did not become defiled through that. He's the only priest that he died for us so that though we are unclean, he identified with us so that we are clean and forgiven if we're trusting in him alone and we can enter into his perfect kingdom. So these are, these are glorious truths uh, that God has given us and we, we do well to reflect on them even though we're not under this old covenant. Yes, there are differences for us, but the principles, the theological truths still apply to us. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word.
Thank you for um, inspiring all of it, even for our, our understanding, even this old, old covenant that you have given. And um, we pray that as your new covenant people that you would continue to deal mercifully and gracious with us and that we would walk with you in a way that is consecrated and set apart to you for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.